All right, this is Dark Days Radio, episode number 75. Hey, what's up? I'm one of your hosts, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Matt. How's it going, Matt? It's going all right. All right, cool. And also joining us is the legend himself, the man you haven't heard from in a couple months, Chig. How's it going, Chig? It's going well. Glad to be back. Absolutely. I missed you guys. Well, I missed you too, Chig. Even though we, you know, text like at least three times a week. At least. Usually about a particular Penises. book that we're going to talk about. No, no, Chig, not about that. <laughs> I got to edit that out. Sorry. <laughs> uh, probably not. And okay. <laughs> so one of the things we're, we're going to be talking about today, of course, is Dark Ages Mage for, uh, well, Dark Ages Vampire? Hmm, funny how that works out. And also, we're going to be talking about The Pure for Werewolf the Forsaken, so should be a pretty cool episode. And, uh, guys, uh, before we get started, um, what have you guys been doing, you know, gaming-wise? What's been going on? Matt, have you been getting any gaming in? Um, not, you know, tabletop gaming, but I did play through Tyranny, which, you know is created by our Dark Lords and Masters Paradox, and is actually pretty good, all things considered. Sweet, sweet. Can you uh, give us some details on Tyranny? Like, what's the, uh, what's the gameplay like? Um, the gameplay is basically exactly like Pillars of Eternity. They've basically got themselves into a system that works pretty well, and the gameplay was never my complaint about Pillars of Eternity. Um, you're playing... The Fate Binder, which is basically a judge, jury, slash executioner type kind of person, um, going to this, going to the, I can't remember the name of the place where you're going, but the idea is that there are two archons, which are the followers of the great god emperor that is ruling most of the continent who are squabbling, trying to get things done to fight and root out these this last bit of rebellion before the, the continent is conquered. And they're just fighting between each other and not getting anything done. And you go there and basically unleash the edict from Kairos that says, unless you guys, you know, f- fix your shit in the next week, everybody here dies. And so you then proceed to get get shit fixed. And then it turns out that you're far more powerful than you thought you were. And you start changing things, discovering more edicts, discovering more power, dealing with your party of people who don't really get along on most things. But But do like you because you are ridiculously powerful and it's just fun. Yeah, definitely. And it's sort of a computer RPG in the uh, isometric nature, like Baldur's Gate and that sort of thing. So pretty cool if uh, you're into that kind of gameplay. All right, Chig, have you been doing any like sweet gaming lately or anything? Um, well, my normal gaming group has finally managed to get back together for the new year. Um, we have played exactly one session of Torg, which is a fun and exciting game. Oh my god, Torg. Yeah. Torg. We are also super looking forward to the new version of Torg that's coming out from Ulysses Spiel sometime this year. But, uh, you know, your guess is as good as mine as to when that's going to happen. Um, when we can't get together for that, we do board games, as you know. And I've also picked up this new um, computer game 
that you guys might have heard of. It's called Borderlands. So I played through that. It was fun. And I got to the end, and I'm on the DLC. And the second DLC is super boring. No one warned me. I never actually played through the first Borderlands. I did play Borderlands 2, which is good and has good DLC. Yeah, I have that as well. It's on my um, to-playlist, but I like to finish one before I start another. Thanks, Steam Sale. There's um, one of the DLCs for um, Borderlands 2 is basically playing through a little girl's um, D&D campaign. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check this game out because that sounds pretty dope. Yeah, I think I have that as well if it was on the, uh, whatchamacallit, Steam uh, sale. Tiny Tina's Assault on Dragon Keep. Yes. I think I have that. If you got again, the gold edition, then you got it. I don't know. I got whatever was in there, little, you know, super inexpensive whatever. I think it was in there. They had a, they had a sale. I don't know. But no, we'll like... Like the entire time you're playing the game, you're just got voiceover narration, and people are like, "Why are you? Why are we fighting dragons? We shouldn't be fighting dragons yet." And the dragon just disappears and is replaced with a horde of zombies. Nice. <laughs> That's great. I like it. Makes sense. All right, cool. And uh, for my gaming, uh, Attack on Giants got to its third session. We just played that the other day, and it, you know it was pretty good. Uh, they almost died to a couple of shadows uh, and the the bottom of a castle but you know they, they they made it through they defeated them and uh it's a pretty good time and i also noticed that i'm really super lazy nowadays about describing the environment i'm just like yeah there's, there's a dwarf castle and there's like some some etchings and carvings i don't know you guys think it looks cool well that's that's good because that you know allows for uh create um collaborative world building so if you say there is a rune on the wall it is a rune that says you know donkeys this way then it will only ever say donkeys this way but if you just say there's runes on the wall then the uh dwarf in the party can go oh well i'm a dwarf so i obviously i can read these runes and this one says we should go this way for the uh whatever yeah, these players aren't really at that that level of collaborative storytelling yet, but uh, maybe I should uh, kind of lead them in that direction. That's a great point, Trig. Great point. Ask them what uh, what does this rune say. Ask them. Make them you know work for it. It's fun. That's one of my favorite things about Dungeon World, but I haven't played Dungeon World in a very long time. Ah oh, man, Dungeon World. That's a fun game. It might be my favorite version of D anD. d with another creepy crap out of Apocalypse World. Yay! Yay. All right, sweet. I think it's a good introduction, guys. You want to move over to the White Wolf, or maybe I should say just World of Darkness news? Yeah, let's yep. head over that way. All right, cool. So what's been going on in the World of Darkness and the Chronicles of Darkness as well? Well, Onyx Path, of course, has been uh, busy putting out some new stuff since our last show. Uh, first up is the Dawn of Heresies uh, novel for Mummy the Curse. Pretty cool that uh, Mummy the Curse is still getting some content. Uh, it's a really interesting setting overall, which uh, we haven't talked about enough here on the show. But it's really just very interesting because of the sort of contained story, almost contained meta plot, but... Maybe not meta plot. Um, the 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 setting and plotline, the optional plotline that the uh, game provides uh, within the context of the Chronicles of Darkness. So, I think that's pretty cool. And uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll check it out. Have we not 
talked about it enough. I, I could have sworn we did at least one and a half uh, episodes. Hey, man, we talk about vampires all the time on the show. We got to give some love to the other things, right? I guess. A little bit, a little bit. And of course, uh, <laughs> Onyx Path also put out a brand new book for Beast the Primordial, which is Night Horrors Conquering Heroes. Uh, yeah, that's the thing that they did. Yep, it is. Um, we will probably end up doing a full episode on it at a later date, but I've read through it and I can just say it is somehow worse than Beast. Don't buy it, please. Just don't. It makes me sad. Yep. Well, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll we'll cover it further in a more full review uh, at a future date. Um, but for now, but, wrong. Do not recommend. Uh, additionally, there is a new Dark Ages book that just came out, uh, which is pretty cool because we've been talking about Dark Ages a little bit here on this show. Uh, so V20 Dark Ages Tome of Secrets is out. And it's a lot of just like additional content for the Dark Ages games, some extensions of like the different blood sorceries, Caldonic sorceries, Sedite sorcery, etc. Um, and a lot of like cool... Uh, you know, in-character expansions to the setting itself. So it uh, seems like a really cool, uh, you know, new book, and it's been very well-received. So uh, definitely something to check out. It is and, um, V20 branded, so it is specifically for Vampire Dark Ages. Not uh, Dark Ages Mage or Inquisition or anything. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, they all kind of play together a little bit. So in addition to that, we've got... Uh, some cool announcements for World of Darkness Berlin, uh, which uh, Chris and I will be at in May. Uh, and they're actually going to have a new set of Vampire the Eternal Struggle cards, which like everyone's going to be getting when they uh, come to the show, which is wicked dope because, uh, as you may know, there haven't been new VTS cards printed since 2010. So it's the, the first set of cards in seven years. Um, there's been some like online-only expansions uh, provided by the uh, Vican Council. Uh, but this is pretty cool because it's finally like official cards in print. So that's going to be good. And uh, further news, of course, in the uh, world of darkness, or maybe in the real world, is that good friend of the show, Peter Marshall, co-host and all, just got married. So, Pete, congratulations. Congratulations, Pete. Woo, Pete. All right. I think that's all the uh, horrific news we have for you today. So let's just move on over to our first segment for the One World of Darkness. Classic World of Darkness. All right, Chig, Matt, there's a book. It was one of the first World of Darkness books I got. And you know what? Reading through it for this episode, I still think it's one of the best. And that, of course, is Dark Ages Mage. I'm not going to disagree with you. Dark Ages Mage is probably the best take on Mage in the old World of Darkness. Mm, I think so. And Matt, even you've got a copy. Uh, what do you think of it? I haven't read it through it in much detail. Um, I got I, you that book three years ago. You realize yeah. how many books I have? <laughs> three years. Yeah, yep. Matt. Why didn't you read it? It's not like someone sent you an entire giant box full of Werewolf the Forsaken books. Which I probably have read in more detail because it's Werewolf and that yeah. actually, yeah. It's pretty Sorry. dope. Okay. So all three of us are big fans of Dark Ages Mage, and we're going to give you kind of just a, an overview and explanation of why this is just one of the best books that White Wolf uh, ever put out. So what is Dark Ages Mage about? Well, you're a bunch of dudes with magic in 1230 AD Europe, and you can just do whatever you want. It's just fun stuff. 
when you look at some of the other uh, Dark Ages games that came out in like that 2002 to 2004 run, they were all fairly meta plot heavy. Uh, for Dark Ages Vampire, there was this whole war of princes going on. Uh, Dark Ages Werewolf kind of shoehorned in this prophecy of the tribes, which neglected to talk about the Stargazers, the uh, Uktena, or any of the other more non-European tribes. It only talked about the ones that were close by, which a little ridiculous. Anyway, Dark Ages Inquisitor had the Shadow Inquisition just forming last year. Uh, It was a very new thing, and uh, there was uh, a lot of, you know, uh, turmoil associated with the formation of this new segment of the, uh, the Catholic Church. And of course, Dark Ages Fey has the Fey Truce uh, about to expire very soon. And it's the uh, lead up to what's going on with that. What was that growling right boring. there? Oh, okay. Dark Ages Fey is the most boring game line. <laughs> yeah, I've got some strong opinions about it as well. Um, Aren't they also ridiculously powerful and can do basically anything? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of... A lot of things to unpackage right there, but uh, that's that's something to discuss on on another another show. But Dark Ages Mage, um, it doesn't waste your time with any of that. You know, the meta plot is just real history because they're real people with you know extraordinary miracle powers, um, and you still exist in a world that believes in magic. So just have fun, because who's going to stop you? Well, other mages will probably stop you, um, but. There's this uh, just really cool stuff in here. You know, uh, it sets up that sort of uh, ideological war of Mage the Ascension in a very different way. Instead of trying to influence humanity to ensure like a safe future for your Mage's paradigm, Dark Ages Mage is really just setting the stage for a battle of faith. Um, And it specifically does that through the fellowships. So, Chig, uh, do you want to kind of just go over the, the fellowships, which are really the, the meat and bones of the Dark Ages Mage setting, uh, since sure. they're the, the core things that interact. Yeah, um, there are six fellowships, which is how you define your character at the loosest sense. You're a member of one of these six groups. Uh, there are the Ali Batin, who, um, and the system itself breaks these down into the civilized and the pagan or heathen traditions and it does that in the grimoire so i'm going to go ahead and continue using those terms mm-hmm. um hope no one finds that too overly uh problematic but it is how they define them in the books so there are the three civilized traditions which are the ali batin uh who are from the middle east they uh their faith is or their um workings are based on primarily the muslim faith with a little bit of other middle eastern mysticism baked right in um the ollie batine um they kind of don't change from the middle ages through or through the dark ages i guess through ever so they're just mm-hmm. like they are in the uh uh mage uh the ascension that we're all familiar with uh the other two groups uh in the civilized uh fellowships are the messianic voices who are mostly Christian mages, um, though the book does go out of its way to point out that there are other uh, primarily uh, monotheistic groups involved, including Muslims. So the Alibatin don't have a stranglehold on one religion. Yep. Um, then finally, there's the Order of Hermes, which is, you know, standard pointy hat wizards, uh, also considered one of these civilized groups. Uh, they're not specifically religious but they are uh, highly influenced by the uh, three Abrahamic religions. 
they use their abilities to, you know, cast fireballs and summon angels. Yeah, definitely. And, They're also like very, uh, very Greco-Romantic as well. Um, heavily influenced by uh, Egyptian belief as well. Oh uh, yeah, that's that's where it all starts, and that influenced the uh, the Greeks as well. Yep. Right. And then we have the three heathen fellowships: the Old Faith, who are you know your pagans, your witches, your wise women out in the woods. Uh, they are kind of what uh, will one day become the Verbena. Uh, there's the Valdermen, who are um, well, they're Viking mages, and they're just pretty fucking cool. Yep, definitely. Uh, and finally, there are the spirit talkers, uh, who are shamans. You know, the proto dream speakers, kind of the. Um, spiritual counterpart to the more physical old faith uh they can summon spirits and chat with them and uh their magic is based on interacting with uh spirits and archetypes yeah definitely so these six fellowships pretty much represent uh all of the like core faiths that you're going to find um at least in a very broad general sense uh in you know kind of the middle ages europe at this time, you know, the old faith still exists a lot in Lithuania, Baltic states, and a little bit um, in, in some of the, the Russias. Uh, the Valdermans, you know, obviously up, uh, up north in Scandinavia. And the Messianic voices, um, who have a lot of uh, Christian influence, but uh, again, also uh, Muslims and uh, also uh, Jewish faiths, the rabbinical Jews. And um, Zoroastrianism and all kinds of other stuff. As long yeah, as it's uh, primarily a uh, monotheistic religion, it'll mm-hmm. fit within the uh, Messianic voices. Yeah, they don't actually talk about them uh, being involved with Zoroastrianism in the core book. Is that something that they expand upon in the grimoire? They definitely include Zoroaster in the uh, the grimoire, yeah. And the yeah. grimoire, for those listening along at home, is the Dark Ages Mage Companion. That's very good to know because I was really the uh, I was about to comment that that's the one faith that I didn't see in the uh, core book that I kind of felt was missing. So, boom, they got it right there in the source book. So that's great to hear. They were cut for space. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, there weren't too many Zoroastrians uh, around at this time, but hey, they still exist today in the real world. There so is it's kind of neat. North Texas Zoroastrian Center, uh, which is twenty five miles from my house. So nice. Nice. Yep. Yeah, so uh, a lot of cool stuff. Um, now, of course, you do need to uh, discuss a little bit the fact that these are um, player organizations based off of real faiths. They do a pretty decent job in the book of separating them from uh, actual institutions. You know, the Messianic voices aren't, you know, mages of the Catholic Church. They have some similar uh, teachings. You know, they're very focused on monotheism and uh, using uh, particular features of, of Christianity and Abrahamic religions, such as, you know, angels uh, as components um, or methodologies of their, their spell casting. But they aren't, they aren't even specifically Christians themselves. Additionally, the uh, Ali Batan pre-exist uh, uh, Islam, uh, which is one of the interesting things. They kind of uh, sort of really just, just co-opt that religion on some ways to um, fulfill some of their, their teachings uh, for their, their prior magical knowledge. So that's why uh, they're pretty neat as well. So <clears throat> the point just being that uh, there is enough distance, I feel, uh, between real-world religions and the actual fellowships themselves to avoid a lot of problems in the game. But it's something that you just kind of have to be a little bit careful about 
um, and just you know talk to your players a little bit before starting up a, a Dark Ages Mage game to uh, make sure that you know boundaries are set a little bit. What you should do before you play any game, really. I mean, yeah, yeah, any definitely. game, might, you know, touch on touchy subjects. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think the only other thing I want to say about these is that, um, you know, when you're reading through, you might notice that the, so the Valdermen, for for the heathen, in quotation marks, uh, fellowships, the Valdermen are very detailed because they're specifically a sort of pagan uh, Norse. Yeah, they are very specifically from one culture. And uh, like all the uh, fellowships, they have one core belief but because they're not you know just a catch-all like the um uh like the old faith which can be any kind of uh pagan god worshiping person or the spirit talkers who can come from any culture that has anything shamanistic in it yeah they're very the the um valdermen are very narrowly focused yeah, they're very detailed in that regard. And my recommendation would be for the Old Faith and Spirit Talkers, if you're going to play one of those characters, just do like a little bit of research uh, beforehand into the specific um, uh, polytheistic faith that you want them to represent. Uh, just like read the Wikipedia page or something to get a bit more of a feel. Because we look at, say, the Old Faith, uh, as they're presented in the book, you know, it's a little a little broad. They seem very druidic in many ways. Um which may not be super applicable if you want to play maybe like an Armenian uh, polytheistic mage or maybe something over in uh, in the East in like uh, what becomes Russia. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's old faith in uh, the Baltic area. There's old faith in uh, uh, the Celtic area of, you know, like the Druids and the, uh, the Strega are going to be very different. Uh, the Strega being, you know, um, in Italy. Uh, but they're all, you know, lumped under this one tradition, which, to be fair, is a problem that Mage has always had. So. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But we're we're about to talk about the magic system, which uh, should kind of resolve many of those Mage issues. But uh, I just want to ask, uh, Matt, do any of these uh, fellowships kind of jump out at you? Do any of them kind of excite you for maybe playing a Dark Ages Mage game? The... Uh... Sorry, my I can't remember the name off the top of my head. The... One based on the curse, the Catholic Church. I think they're kind of interesting. Um, just because, like, I've I've read through the book a little bit here while you guys were talking, and I like the way that their pillars are set up based on the archangels as opposed to, like, the archangels that they're trying to um, emulate rather than, like, oh, this is the one for blowing stuff up, and this is the mm-hmm. one for doing things like that. Like, it's more esoteric concepts based on the angels that they embody. Which I think yeah. Is interesting. Yeah, it's definitely super neat. And that is a great segue, Matt, into talking about the magic system. So this is where Dark Ages Mage just, like, hits it out of the park. It's such a great system, and... I think it's empirically superior to Mage the Ascension, but still rec- instantly recognizable to Mage the Ascension players. And it should be really easy for them to just jump right in. Um, and also easy for new players as well. It's just oh, it's so good. It is, it is much easier to jump into the Dark Ages Mage system than it is the, uh, the Nine Sphere system. Yeah, yeah, I definitely concur. So the Magic system has three key aspects, which are the Foundation, the Pillar, and then backlash. Um, so the foundation is a mage's power stat. 
it's equivalent to Arate in Mage the Ascension, but what's really cool is that your foundation is defined by your fellowship. So uh, Order of Hermes has a specific foundation, while the Old Faith have a separate but also specific uh, foundation. And it's typically the same for all mages in that fellowship. Uh, and this explains the basic paradigm of the character, as well as you know describing their their essentially their power level at this time. Um, so it itself solves like fifty percent of Mage the Ascension's problems. You know, it introduces the character and explains what their paradigm is in very uh, specific and clear terms. And it's just super helpful to a storyteller because it gives you just an instant springboard for all these different NPCs um, and what their paradigm should be. Now, some people might complain like, oh, well, I want to have a unique paradigm or I, I want to you know, change things a little bit. And that's really easy to do. Just talk to your storyteller and say, hey, you know, I feel that uh, the, the old faith's foundation is not very good for playing like a Mithras cult uh, in, in London during uh, the, uh, the Middle Ages time period. And they'll say, like, yeah, okay, let's change this around a little bit, make some adjustments to the foundation just to, you know, kind of fill in uh, how their paradigm would be. But doing this sort of, like, a, basically all the heavy lifting for paradigms has been done for you in this book. Um, and it really just makes things a lot more clear and speeds things up. Yeah, the way that they, um, that they tie the uh, foundation and the pillars into your uh, paradigm is just breathtakingly easy. And I understand that it would have made uh, Mage the Ascension uh, more factious and more difficult to have people copying other people's spells, but I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, if you're, if you're going to be a uh, son of Ether, then you really shouldn't be trying to copy what the Dream Speaker is doing. Yeah, if you're going to copy their rote you'll need to do some readjustments to make it match up to your paradigm in the first place which is the same thing that you have to do here in dark ages mage right it's it's the same thing but it is more easily quantifiable in dark ages mage yeah certainly yeah so um and chig you've actually created some of your own fellowships using this system and you know uh changing around the the foundations of pillars so it's pretty easy to do isn't it oh yeah it's like I said, I mean, once you once you realize that all you really need are the uh, the foundation on which you know the paradigm is built and the pillars, which is how you go about doing whatever it is your uh, your group does, it's insanely easy just to you know whip up one or two or three in no time at all. I mean, I I adapted the uh, Himka Sobek, my favorite craft, uh, to Dark Ages Mage once because. I mean, in Mage Ascension, they're just a little crummy craft who worship a sewer alligator, basically. But in the Dark Ages, they're a for real threat who will, you know, hunt you down and eat you. So. Yep, definitely some really cool stuff. And, you know, kind of bouncing off of that, the pillars themselves are great. So they're basically the specific methods or arts available to a character to perform magic, uh, specific, again, to their fellowship. So each fellowship has, in the core book, four pillars. And, you know, they kind of measure, like, a character's specific skill um, in, in a particular methodology. And, again, this fixes more of Mage the Ascension's problems. 
Um, and Chick, you've got the grimoire, which kind of expands the pillars a little bit, right? So there is there's the ability to have like some alternates. Is that right? It really doesn't expand it in that way. It gives you a more. Um... I mean, obviously, because it's a, a White Wolf book, it gives you a whole bunch of more roots, which is fun and exciting in and of itself. But it gives you a, um, it gives you more fun and exciting ways to use what's already there. Uh, it only adds one additional pillar, and that is for the um, kind of sub-fellowship that it introduces at the back of the book. There's this little upstart group of uh, former Order of Hermes mages called Craft Masons. Hey, hmm. see big things on their horizon. Oh, definitely. Cool. And uh, yeah, so let's just kind of go over the system a little bit real quick just to kind of show people how great this is. So let's just try to cast a, uh, a standard spell. You know, let's say we're playing an Order of Hermes mage and you want to throw like a fireball or maybe just like make some fireworks uh, for a court event uh, in your game. So all you have to do is just tell the storyteller your intended effect and what pillars you want to use. Uh, so in this case, the Order of Hermes have a pillar called Virus which gives them, it says in the book, Command of Elemental Forces. So this is probably all you need just to cast a simple spell. Uh, specifically, when you look at the book, uh, three dots in Virus uh, lets a mage project uh, significant overt energy, like throwing a, fire bo- uh, a lightning bolt or something. So that seems like it's probably pretty uh, applicable in this case. So uh, you just get the approval of your storyteller, and then you make a dice pool, which is going to be number of dice equal to your foundation plus the pillar, in this case, Virus. And the difficulty uh, equals four plus the required level uh, of the, the primary pillar. So in this case, you're going to be using Virus 3, so that's going to be four plus three, difficulty seven. Just roll the dice, and as long as you get one or more successes, boom, you're good to go. And uh, let's say you want to cast something more complex that uses multiple pillars. So one of the cool things about Dark Ages Mage is that you can do anything. You can cast any kind of spell. It's just that, let's say, as an Order of Hermes Mage, certain things might be a little bit harder to justify. You'll have to use more pillars to be able to explain how you're able to achieve the intended effect. Would you concur with that, Chig? To a point, like I, like I said pre- earlier off the mic, there's really nothing in some... Uh, fellowships uh, paradigm that allows for certain effects. And that's fine. If you're, you know, the uh, the wise old woman who lives in the woods, you really don't need, or ha- your character wouldn't have need of a spell to travel to Constantinople. So the, uh, the uh, old faith doesn't really have a, um, a spell that uh, corresponds to correspondence in the modern nights. They're that's just not their their thing. Yeah, not part of their purview. Yeah, I can definitely yeah, see they're... that. Uh, but there's there's certainly a lot of there's still a lot of potential. So let's say the thing uh, it can't be done. I'm just saying it's very very difficult for some groups to do some things. Right. You. So I can I can definitely see your point, Chig. There probably is a way to get the intended effect, but it might not be specifically fast travel. It might be some sort of a way of uh, maybe transferring your consciousness, let's say, into another being in Constantinople, and then acting through them for a temporary amount of time. That's certainly probably something sure. that they could do based on their pillars, but you didn't actually sure. physically travel there. So it does take some creativity, um, but you know what? That just makes the game more fun. 
Exactly. And it makes it more flavorful. It keeps every mage from being every other mage, which is a problem that you can have in certain editions of mage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So let's get back to casting a complex spell. So let's say you're an Order of Hermes mage and you want to summon a spirit. That's the thing that Order of Hermes mages do all the time in the modern setting. So, all right, you go and you look at your foundation of modus and the four pillars. Uh, and the first thing you need to do is pick a primary pillar for your spell. That's kind of like the, uh, the core uh, driving force of the spell you're about to cast. So the Order of Hermes and Dark Ages mage have four pillars, uh, one of which is Anima, the command of life. Corona, the command of the mind. Primus, which is the command of contessence. And finally, Virus, which is, as we mentioned, the command of elemental forces. So none of those specifically deal with spirits. So we've kind of got to start thinking right here and figure out a way to combine these different pillars to get the intended effect. So bringing an umbral spirit to your location probably requires a bunch of different, you know, magical aspects. I'm thinking you're going to need some energy. Um going to need some some like physical energy going to need some way to communicate and then finally you're going to need some knowledge of like the the world's hidden places you know the umbra itself and how to manipulate it so that says to me you probably want the pillars of virus corona and primus um to cast this spell you know you're going to want to uh conjure in the real world a manifestation of this spirit but you also need to communicate to it and draw it to your place and to do that, you need to influence some umbral energy, un- energies. So that's uh, where I'm coming up with those three pillars. So you tell that to the storyteller, and I'm probably going to say that Corona, you know, the, the communication aspect, you know, the, the power of the mind, uh, is going to be the primary pillar, because this ain't going to happen unless you're able to strongly communicate with this spirit and the like. <clears throat> so you're going to make a sure. dice pool? You know, I'm not really sure yeah. you would need Virus in that case, unless you're summoning the spirit of an animal or something like that. You're trying to talk to uh, you know. I was thinking that you'd, you'd summon some sort of a physical manifestation in the uh, uh, real world, uh, which would take take energy or some kind of a change of matter. So that's why I was putting in Virus. Well, you use Primus. That's magic. It's a spirit. But it's magic. I guess I was giving it a corporeal... Um, I mean, I guess if you sorts. wanna, you can do that. But I mean, yeah, you're definitely right, Chig. If you want here, to make it a simpler is, spell, here is the point of how the system works. There are multiple yeah. ways to achieve the same uh, effect. Yeah, certainly. Um, I was actually thinking of a different effect, which you could use the uh, anima command of life to inhabit the spirit in an animal. Let's say you want to summon, um, you want you want to put a demon in a black goat. You know, as one does. As one does, you could use anima uh, in that case. But anyway, just to quickly explain, so uh, your dice pool is going to be your foundation, plus the number of dice for your primary pillar, plus one extra dice for each pillar that you use. And likewise, your difficulty is equal to five, plus the uh, level of the, the primary pillar required, uh, plus one for each additional uh, pillar used. So you actually can have a case where your spell is so complex that your difficulty is uh, 11 or more. So you want to be careful about that. But yeah, uh, throw the dice and boom, one or more successes and you summon a spirit. So yeah, really cool stuff. So I forgot to check. Does this uh, version of the rule system have thresholds uh, for success? Or um, sorry, thresholds where if you go, if your target number goes over 10, you just have to have multiple successes? Yes. If it, I just actually read that. If it goes over nine, then for each point that would put it at ten, you need to get an extra success. That's what I thought. 
at least for simple spells. They didn't have that caveat in the complex spells, so I'm not sure if that can go over. We can presume. Okay. <laughs> cool. And Jake, you had some uh, points you wanted to make about uh, some other foundations and uh, spellcasting examples? Oh, sure. Um, your example of a uh, Order of Hermes Mage summoning a spirit is a complex effect for the Order of Hermes. But if you're playing a different, uh, a different uh, fellowship, uh, one who is even more attuned to summoning spirits, for instance, there's a group called the Spirit Talkers. That's their whole thing. That's their bread and butter. Um, so if you're playing one of them, you can, you don't have to be crazy complex about this. You just, their base, uh, their foundation is interacting with spirits. So if you want to summon a spirit just to have a little chat with, you can do that with any of their, uh, pillars. It'll just you know, determine which, uh, type of spirit you summon. If you have a, if you want to talk to the spirit of a town, you probably don't want to use the warrior pillar, which will, unless it's a very martial town, I guess. So, yeah, this is just an example of how what is a complex spell for one group is a simple spell for another group. Yeah, definitely, which makes it just more interesting. Uh, it makes working together with other mages just all the more powerful. So, yeah, um, I guess the, the final aspect of spellcasting is, of course, Backlash, which uh, yeah, you're probably familiar with uh, Backlash and Paradox from uh, uh, Mage the Ascension. It's a bad thing that happens to you if you roll no successes and get uh, one or more ones on your dice. So basically, if you botch. And Backlash can take the form of physical branding, haunting manifestations, physical trauma, or uh, you know, mental trauma in the form of Twilight. The actual effects in the game are a little bit vague. Um, you know, there wasn't too much guidance in the book. But, you know, Jake, that's kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's good. It lets you, you know, open it up to different uh, backlash effects for different, you know, spells that you're casting that you screw up. You don't want, you know, your, your travel effect backlash to be the same as your summoning lightning out of the sky backlash effect. You want it to be more thematic. Mm-hmm. Yep. So... Dark Ages of Mage is it's pretty sweet. Um, you know, if you look around on the internet, you occasionally find some people that have probably never played Dark Ages Mage complaining about the uh, the foundations and pillar system. Um, a lot of the times I find them complaining about, like, uh, Order of Hermes and how they can't summon spirits. Like, there's no spirit summoning uh, pillar. Or there's no alchemy pillar, uh, for example. But, uh, well, we just showed you how to use the system to do just that. Um, it's really flexible, you know, if you just stop and think for a minute about how your mage would go about getting the, the effect that you want or achieving the goal that you want, uh, pretty much anything is possible. And just throwing it out there, if you want to do alchemy as an order of Hermes, you know, use the pillars of anima and primus, you know, uh, life and uh, magic, basically, um, as an extended spell check. Boom, there you go. You can make a potion or something or change lead into gold. Yeah, it's, it's a remarkably simple system and mm-hmm. it can be done yeah definitely and it's actually it's really interesting how they balanced it so you've got your foundation and the four pillars and each paradigm each each one of these uh, fellowships. Uh, fellowships is actually kind of secretly balanced because um, there's four pretty common types of pillars that you find you know one for healing another for energy uh, one for like travel and communication another one with uh meddling for for like magic and reality and most of the fellowships get three of these four common pillars and then also one that's you know a little bit more unique um so that's just a really cool way that they they were able to uh balance and 
you know, bring some some ease and commonality to the game, but also make all of these fellowships just a little bit unique. You can look into the uh, the pillars, and you can say, and the foundations even, and you can say, oh, okay, well, in a hundred or three years, that's going to merge with this, and they're going to become the the life sphere, or that is very clearly the entropy sphere, but they don't present them that way, which is an amazing step in the right direction. So not everybody has the same nine spheres or the same nine spheres with different names. Yep. And a cool little like background fluff tidbit is that they do mention that um, mages can learn the pillars of other fellowships, uh, which is kind of neat because it sort of explains how eventually all these fellowships kind of combine and coalesce into the traditions and the uh, Order of Hermes theory of the nine spheres in the uh, modern knights. So that's pretty neat, too. Yeah, it's not impossible, but it's very expensive, and you're usually easier just to figure out how to do something your own way. Yep, definitely. So yeah, Dark Ages Mage, how can it inspire some other World of Darkness games? I mean, the thing you find online, you know, people talking about is just using the system wholesale to replace Mage the Ascension. Um, I'd be very interesting if any, interested if anyone's written up these uh, foundations and pillars for the uh, core traditions of that game and maybe even the technocracy. I would be shocked if they had not done so. Uh, I haven't found it yet, but uh, if anyone's found such a document, uh, I would really like to see that. As would I, so go ahead and email us that document. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty much Dark Ages Mage. Uh, Matt, do you have any comments, uh, questions about it? What's your, what's your general feeling on this? Well, like I said, it, I think it seems interesting and it's a much lower barrier for entry and understanding than Mage the Ascension was because that's like, oh yeah, here's nine separate um, traditions and each of them have access to the nine spheres and everybody has a paradigm and everyone's paradigm is different and you have to define all of these things before you're even allowed to start playing and why am I doing this? Everybody has their own uh, paradigm and good luck figuring that out, first time player. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and also, you know, things like Arate are pretty vague, and it's just great that they linked it with your, your paradigm uh, in the, the power stat of Foundation in this game. So it's really cool, and we didn't even cover everything in the book. There is, like, uh, tons of uh, additional backgrounds, a lot of great ideas for um, different locations to visit, you know, cairns and uh, uh, quays in the magical world, and uh, just it's chock full of good stuff, and I feel it's it's really just one of the greatest books and an unsung book at that uh put yeah, out by of, uh white real Wolf. undiscovered gem and i i wish that it had had more than uh two books in the game line but that's still better than you know dark ages they ever got so i can't complain too much <laughs> yep yep certainly all right cool so I think if that's all we have to discuss on dark ages mage we're going to move on over to the secret frequency So deep within the eastern highlands of Zimbabwe is a mountain, a strange, cursed peak known as Nyanganya. And this place in the last couple years has really had, it's always been known that it's cursed, but it's had an acceleration of uh, strange happenings and mysterious beings uh, noted. So traditionally, uh, the different tribes uh, in eastern Zimbabwe noted that 
this mountain was a uh, an old ancestral uh, spirit location, a holy site, um, which only the bravest could venture to. But now it's a national park, one of the few in Zimbabwe, so people are going there all the time. But unfortunately, bizarre things are happening to them. Hikers get lost. Uh, they hear strange sounds. Some of them, as they're hiking along on the path, will see uh, different objects, temptations off the beaten path. Things like strangely covered, colored snakes, a fire that doesn't have any, any apparent source, or perhaps a golden bar tempting them with greed. Uh, many people have gone missing, and one event happens where uh, some of the people were, there was a search party sent out for them, and for four days, uh, search parties, helicopters, everything was traveling around, uh, attempting to find the people. Uh, and they're actually stuck in a crevasse. They got trapped down there. And they would call out whenever they saw a search party going by, but it was almost as though they were mute and invisible because none of the search parties ever were able to hear them or rescue them. But it wasn't until uh, some tribal shamans were called up and they did a blood sacrifice at the base of this mountain uh, that they, uh, the, the hikers were actually rescued after that point. Some other things that have happened was uh, there was an English explorer, adventurer almost, uh, who was hiking around on this mountain. And he was going up towards the peak and a strange, unusual fog started rolling down the mountain. He uh, stopped where he was, stayed on the path, and didn't venture off or get lost. But he noticed, of course, that his magnetic compass was going haywire, his electrical equipment was no longer working, um, and even some photos that he took of the fog rolling in uh, with traditional film were not able to correctly develop later on. As he, he sat there for about 10 hours, uh, he tried to rest and just stay where he was and wait out the storm. And he noticed that there were dozens of snakes that just came out of the mist and started to surround him. And he could have sworn that red eyes were staring at him from just, uh, just beyond his perception. So very strange happenings here. And actually, further down in the valley, there were two dams that were being constructed. And there were just numerous uh, strange occurrences, uh, freak accidents, and just like you know, destruction of their, their constructs that were going on. And uh, eventually, the, the workers just quit. They just left the site until something could be done, saying that the mermaids of the local river had become angered and were destroying the dams. And lo and behold, some of the village elders from nearby Wins did a ritual, and when the workers came back, all the problems stopped. So, uh, very strange things here at this mountain. What do you guys think? Do you have any ideas for how this might be uh, an interesting location in your World of Darkness game, or uh, maybe an explanation for what could be going on here? Hunters in Darkness are keeping somebody away from something they probably shouldn't touch. Yeah, that's a very good idea for uh, Werewolf the Forsaken, certainly. A.K.A. Scarecrow Ministry, or if you want to go Changeling. I mean, it just sounds like a uh, a, uh, a glen or a cairn in the old World of Darkness. You know, uh, one of the one of the last remaining natural spots on Earth that are tied to the spirit world. There's all kinds of fun you could do with that, especially with the uh, the river mermaids. That, that makes it uh, sound very changeling-esque. Mm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Or it could be a, uh, since it was, you know, they were able to stop it with the uh, blood sacrifices and rituals, it could be a, um, a node and the uh, local mages tap it for power and Occasionally, they will, uh, you know, allow people to go up there just to warn others off, you know, as a warning. 
So they let the guy hike up the mountain, and while he was up there, they you know summoned the uh, evil red-eyed snakes and the uh, the mist and all that, and they locked people at the bottom of a uh, ravine and then you know they left and said hey let's never ever go back there it's horrible and there's monsters and so the local mages who you know were able to shut it off after a while still have access to this place of power yeah definitely here's my idea guys so let's say that there's actually an earthbound which has been bound to this mountain itself bound to the land here in uh, eastern zimbabwe and of course that's a huge issue for the characters uh their their explorations perhaps they uh are werewolves with a territorial claim here uh maybe you're just ghost hunters who are uh, exploring uh this place now of course there's been like 30 or more people that have gone missing on uh, this mountain, and that's not good. But whenever the tribal shamans go and they perform some sort of a blood sacrifice at the uh, base of the mountain, um, everything stops. Everything's peaceful for some time. So it would be interesting if actually these village elders were a cult worshipping this earthbound, and whenever they did that blood sacrifice right in front of the authorities, right in front of the player characters, they were actually sacrificing the person that went missing. Ooh. Like that, boom! That's a good little little plot twist right there. Oh, um, maybe to you since uh, Chris isn't here and somebody has to bring up uh, the change new world changeling. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe this is an entrance to the hedge, and the people who go missing are um, all becoming transformed into changelings. The ones who were found, uh, those are their um, horrible garbage replacement people. Oh, yeah, yep. The um, Fetches, is that what they're called? The Fetch, indeed, indeed. Yeah, definitely very good. Another thing that could be very interesting is that it's actually changelings who are getting attracted to this place, into this this trode, into the hedge. And what happens is that uh, there's maybe some sort of a siren song drawing them there. And when they get too close, when they're up on top of the mountain, that's when privateers or maybe uh, some uh, vile... Uh, employee of the gentry comes out and snatches them, uh, which is going to be a huge problem for the local courts. So, any other great ideas here for the Nyangani Mountain? Matt, you got anything? I mean, not really. I mean, like I said, it's if this is in Earth the Forsaken, it's a locus, and the Hunters of Darkness are trying to keep everybody away. Or Changeling, like you said, it could be a gate to the hedge and either people are being abducted or the scarecrow ministry is trying to keep people away yeah i mean there's all right. there's all kinds of fun and exciting things that it could be i mean heck with the uh the red-eyed snakes it could be some far-flung outcropping of uh the followers of set boom there we go yeah it could be something neat all right i think that's good enough for this uh secret frequency so let's move on over to our chronicles of darkness segment chronicles of darkness all right, Matt. So what are we talking about, man? We're talking about the pure. What do you think about them? I'm not 100% of a fan. They've got some serious issues um, in the way that they're portrayed and their motivations. And we really don't know much about how they are in the new new second edition. But they're interesting in some ways, and they're definitely assured of what they are. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well... I, on the other hand, am a big fan of the pure, so this should be an interesting little uh, discussion that we have here. So, listeners are probably, you know, fairly familiar with the the story uh, that a long time ago, you know, in Pangea, Father Wolf grew old and weak and could no longer maintain uh, the hunt in the spirit world. So, 
his children slew him, allowing them to take up uh, Father Wolf's mantle, but in the process, making a great wound, destroying Pangea's paradise uh, in the process. And of course, there were some uh, of the firstborn wolves that refused to attack their father, and these would go forth and uh, become the, the first werewolves of the pure tribes, uh, those being uh, Rabbit Wolf, Silver Wolf, and Dire Wolf. Now, of course, Matt, uh, there are some different origin stories right here, so could you kind of talk about those a little bit uh, and, and how the pure tribes might have developed from uh, this point, millions of years ago? The idea is that, like... The these are the firstborn wolves who did not partake in the slaying of Father Wolf for various reasons. And the pure tribes try to think that they're like, you know, some noble, like they're noble and they did not partake in this horrible thing and that the moon is horrible and terrible. But then you drill down on it and really look at what happened. That's not the case. Um, Silver Wolf didn't. Um, partake in the killing of the father because he was too busy looking at the moon and thinking about how wonderful Luna was. And only when Father Wolf was killed did he get really, you know, angry about it because, you know, how how dare the moon betray him? He loved the moon. Why did she do this? So he, like, leapt up to the moon and tried to attack Luna and she was like, ha no, and then coated him in silver and tossed him down to earth. And so he lives in eternal agony and is pissed off at the moon for killing is her lover because silver wolf loved the moon and wanted to be the lover instead of father wolf and dire wolf really didn't give didn't care at all about father wolf because dire wolf is all about you know the strong survive the weak perish and if father wolf was weak, wolf was weak enough to die then he deserved to perish his only concern is that pangea was shattered therefore ruining his perfect hunting grounds and he's mad about that that's the only thing he cares about rapid wolf is just insane that's Rabbit Wolf. So basically, from these three firstborn, the three pure tribes exist. Uh, they're pretty much diametrically opposed to the uh, Forsaken Tribes of the Moon. And uh, they've kind of formed this, uh, the three of them, this Federation of Hate. That's the word that's used quite a bit in the first edition book. They hunt the Forsaken and try to challenge their territory. A lot of notes are made that they're actually probably more numerous than the uh, Forsaken themselves and are actually uh, fairly more prone to working together, um, you know, different packs in unison, uh, which is a bit more rare for the Forsaken themselves. At least in first edition. Yeah, quite, quite frightening to them. So, as Matt said, they're definitely, um, they're definitely fooling themselves in many ways, and kind of coming up with this own, this ideology to purport and extend their hatred of the Forsaken, and really just justify their, their existence. Uh, in many ways, as opposed to the Forsaken themselves, which have the oath and different rules um, and a, a you know defined presence in the uh, ecology of the spirit world. So just to kind of you know briefly go over it, you know we've got three different tribes, and I'll let Matt kind of expand them a little bit. But the three are, of course, the the Fire Touched, the Ivory Claws, and the Predator Kings. So, Matt, do you want to talk about the Fire Touched a little bit? Sure. The Fire Touched are the followers of uh, Rabbit Wolf. And they are... They basically worship Rabbit Wolf and the spirits. And they are fervent in their belief that if they convert everyone to the worship of the spirits and the worship of Rabbit Wolf, they will heal the world and bring back Pangea and everything will be wonderful and great again. But mm-hmm. yep, they are very fervent in their belief. And they 
use almost exclusively gifts of flame and disease and plague and scourging. And if you do not convert, if you do not believe what they believe, then you deserve to suffer endlessly for such a sin. Their um, tribal ban is that they cannot allow a falsehood to exist. And not believing in Rabid Wolf and the you, and the supremacy of the spirits is a lie that they must avenge. Indeed, it is very interesting. But on the other hand, it's almost as though they're living a lie in many ways. So it's kind of this interesting... Um, they're in a compromised position in many ways. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. It makes them a, uh, a very interesting uh, sort of gray area uh, antagonist for the Forsaken. Well, that's one thing that they come up with is that since their tribal oath is that they cannot allow a falsehood, but so much of their faith is based around either lies of omission or intentionally reinterpreting the past to make themselves seem more favorably, their harmony takes hits all the time. And that's something that happens with all the pure tribes is that since they... and But since they are still bound to harmony the same way the forsaken are regardless of the fact that they don't hold the oaths of the moon in the same way that the the forsaken do they're still taking harmony hits for breaking those tenets of the litany that they don't follow and they think that this is some kind of horrible curse inflicted upon them by luna and that by enduring these enduring these hardships they will become stronger and better but it's still degeneration they're still becoming worse and try and fighting against it and at the same time thinking oh no we are in the right we are the good ones we need to kill everybody else and all of the pure tribes are like that probably none more so than the predator kings but that's something we'll get into later yeah definitely and we can actually talk about the predator kings right now um they're pretty vicious and inhuman hunters um their core tenant is basically that the the strong will live and the weak will die so you know, they're not even up to, like, Hammurabi's law yet. It's a pretty brutal existence for right. them. Right, and their tribal um, ban is that they cannot touch anything of human make. Hilariously, this means, like, if they find a pair of blue jeans that was made by a Forsaken, they can wear it just fine. But anything that was made by man, they cannot use without taking a harmony hit. And Yep, like, uh, you can't run on asphalt. They have to stay off on the... Uh, off on the grass, uh, cities are pretty much their bane. Uh, it's a pretty pretty harsh existence in the uh, the modern nights. So, just for clarification, um, this really is a monster that I can hide under the covers from, and he won't get me. Um, no, if you piss him off enough, he will just take the harmony hit and come kill you. Oh, okay, just checking. But since they still need mankind to breed, and they still need man to do this, they've come up with interesting ways of keeping their breeding stock i.e basically isolating them all in a town in montana and scrawling only the strong survive in blood on a stone in the middle of town and basically breeding with them constantly until wolf-blooded come out and killing anybody who doesn't produce wolf-blooded sons that sounds not great well no and like that's the thing is that on their own, they're a great antagonist. They're frightening and horrifying, but thematically, they don't really mesh well with the rest of the pure. Yeah, I can definitely see that. They seem more akin to the, um, oh gosh, what are those guys? The not Bane wolves. The uh, Bane wolves is that? Well, it? No, they're the the kind of demonic spirit worshiping ones. Well, sort of like 
bale hounds. Right, right. But thematically, they're basically the red talons from Werewolf the Apocalypse, except they're human. But they still hate everything the human stock. And again, that's the contradiction. They are human, but they are forbidden from interacting with humanity. And they're also very tightly bound with their totem to the point that as their harmony goes down, they start letting more and more of Direwolf in and becoming more savage, more hating. And actually, they think that if your harmony gets too high, you're just lying to yourself and obviously don't want Direwolf in your life. So most of them are hovering right around four or five. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Another interesting thing that I found actually in the uh, antagonist appendices uh, is that the Predator Kings, as they get older, as they become like uh, elder wolves, um, and they're like alphas of their pack, let's say, if they're going to be challenged and they can't win, they don't allow themselves to be killed by the, uh, by the young challenger. They actually just go off and die in, in battle against some enemy, some some great spirit or maybe uh, just running into uh, some forsaken territory. And that's interesting because it kind of reflects the uh, story of how some of the uh, uh, firstborn did not want to attack Father Wolf. Well, I just thought that was kind of like a neat little, uh, you know, reflection right there. They have their own version of the Oaths of the Moon. They're the Oaths of the Pure or whatever. But one of them is like they still have, you know, they have the pure shall not murder the pure. So... In that case, it's like, if you're going to get killed, then, you know, accept it and go off because you don't want that other person to break their oaths because harmony is a hard enough thing to come by as a peer anyway. But killing Forsaken, they're 100% okay with, even if it takes a harmony hit. Mm, interesting. Yeah, and finally, the third one is, of course, the Ivory Claws, which are, uh, they're fairly highly adapted. They can actually um, interact very well with human society, but they have, of course, this, you know, squicky obsession with racial purity. Uh, amongst their tribe so yeah it's uh they're, they're kind of interesting uh the forsaken sometimes try to deal with them um but it's usually a trap and uh it does not work out well for the forsaken in the end um well so yeah matt what do you think about these guys um like i like them like i said i like the tribes individually as a whole i think they make themselves worse because they don't really mesh well together but they, like you said, they're all about purity, but they're about purity in weird ways because Silverwolf has given them, they don't have one tribal oath. They have several that are, that they have to obey. Otherwise they take harmony hits. Like let the seeds rot uneaten, consume only the fruit of slaughter. So they can't eat anything that's a seed and any fruit or vegetable they eat has to have the seeds removed. We hunt, do not, we do not sow, plant fiber shall not be worn against the flesh. They are very happy about the advent of polyester. It, <laughs> it says that here. Never venerate the monster of the night sky. So, you know, do not perform any rituals under the light of the full moon. If a rite must be performed under the full moon, do it inside where no moonlight can touch. Abstraction leaves only doubt. Create no work that does not reflect the world as seen. They can lie but they can't make abstract art. Any art they make hmm. has to be brutalistic and realistic. Interesting, interesting. Cleave only to the purest blood. You know, the whole purity thing. So they only mate with humans who have stronger Wrath of bloodlines. They do accept new members, but they're expected to either bleed and in, breed into the blood or don't breed at all. 
Um, and let not the living and dead mingle so that they don't mess around with vampires at all or spirits or ghosts. I mean, like, they, they deal with spirits, but not the spirits of the dead. Huh. Okay. Well, that's a little weird and uh, limiting to your game, but. Well, no. I mean, like, and that's kind of thing is that Silverwolf is so obsessed with purity that he gave them all of these rules. And as they are obsessed with purity, mm-hmm. they have to obey all of them. And they take hits all the time to their harmony because that's the one thing that the 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 main the main difference between the pure tribes and the forsaken is that the forsaken view the spirits as something that need to be controlled and reined in to maintain the harmony between the physical world and the spirit world the pure want the spirit world to reign supreme so that they can return to the way they were that means that they obey the spirits without question to the point that pure totems are usually stronger than forsaken totems because Forsaken get whatever whatever totem is weak enough to that to come and quote unquote abase themselves before the Forsaken, but the pure get like greater jagglings who show up and like okay you're my pack now here are my bands obey them or I kill you. I mean that makes it very interesting for the game as well and the uh, you know using the pure as an antagonist uh, makes them really dangerous overall. Yes, they're probably stronger because they have more spirit support and they get stronger gifts. But they're also weaker in that they take so much, so many harmony hits. They're they barely qualify as, say, as sentient anymore. Yeah, I mean that's really an issue overall because because you're getting a lot of these rules from, of course, the pure source book uh, for uh, for Werewolf Forsaken. So this is really an issue of when you're playing as the pure, using them as NPCs. However, you know issues of harmony you really don't keep track of much as a storyteller. Right. But when you're, tra- but as a pl- like you said, as a player-focused group, I don't really think that they work very well because you need to devote almost all of your experience points to keeping your harmony up because of what you're expected to do all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I think we're kind of, uh, you know, figuring out our our differences right here, Matt, on with regards to the peers. So I think they're really cool as antagonists. I think they're very interesting. Uh, for the for the forsaken to interact with, and of course you're looking at them a lot from the more player aspects, well, uh, having just read the pure source book, and there's some mechanical issues right there, definitely. So, as an outsider, does it explain why anybody would ever want to join one of these crazy groups? To a certain extent, like the fire touched, actually go out and evangelize. Like, they are 100% sure of what they believe in, and they can be very convincing. They have, like, they have, like, conversion campaigns and stuff like that. I can't remember what chapter it is about, like, how can, like, how people learn to convert. But basically, it comes down to the idea that they hate their place in their current pack. They don't like that they're on the bottom of the totem pole. They hear these stories about how strong and scary the pure are, and they think that if they go over to the other side, they'll be in a better place. Oh, so they're men's rights activists. Okay. I got you. I'm not sure if I want to say that, but there is definitely a um, an aspect of joining them because you are, you are displeased with the rest of the Forsaken. And I mean, it's tough being a, an Uratha, you know, Forsaken werewolf. You're basically, like doing spirit maintenance work all the time you're keeping your territory safe it's very tough and it's definitely you know attractive to find out that there's these pure tribes you don't have to do all that you just kind of let the spirits run roughshod and you just get to enjoy yourself as a as a wolf instead of having to do all this labor and sacrifice for the world the thing is that that's what you hear 
that's the party line that the pure are telling all the forsaken. But once you actually get into the pure, it's not. You know, you're just beholden to even more stringent rules that the spirits give you, and you need to work to obey the tenets of your tribe. And they make sure that before you find any of this out, you have already like burned all of your bridges of the Forsaken. Usually they have you kill your family or your old pack before they even initiate you. Like they make sure that you cannot leave and then they tell you, Oh yes, here's the truth, and now we need to skin you alive to get those brands of the moon off of you. Yeah, it's almost like being indoctrinated into some like really horrible gang, basically. And by the time you're in it, well, there's no escape. Exactly. And like that's the thing, like like you said, like looking at it from a player perspective, I'm not really looking at it as a player perspective as much as like how they're supposed to exist as a as a functional unit. Like as some dark, unknowable thing, they can just be there, but they're very fractious. They don't really get along except in their united belief that the spirit world is better. Yet somehow they've supposedly taken over most of the world, in, at least in first edition. <laughs> Yeah, that is pretty strange, um, and and something that we definitely haven't heard about in second edition. In fact, they haven't been talked about too much in the uh, the second edition book. But in the I don't know, the history of Werewolf the Forsaken in first edition, sometime in the 1980s and 1990s, I guess because of Reagan and Thatcher or something, the uh, the pure were able to start secretly conquering uh, all this territory around the world, um, partly due to their superior numbers, but also because of I guess, story fiat. It's a little strange, and I'm not exactly opposed to them like being more numerous, but um, that's sort of a, a declaration that they've, they've conquered all this territory. It feels a little too dramatic to me. In fact, I would, I would really say that it's probably better for the themes of Werewolf the Forsaken if most of the world is not the territory of werewolves, but is in fact just unkept and... Uh, you know, effectively just not really controlled by the spirits, but under their sway, which gives you a lot more room to move around, uh, makes things more mysterious when you move to a new location. You're not just expecting like, oh, okay, I'm going from uh, Boise to, you know, someplace in Nebraska, and oh, there's probably just going to be pure right there. So that's my opinion well, on that. to be fair, I've been to Nebraska, and, yeah. and they're very, very pure in Nebraska. Oh my gosh. <laughs> My thing about it is that, like, it does make more sense if there's more unclaimed territory, like, for places to, for things to expand. And, like, that was a problem in first edition was the idea that basically everything has been claimed. Any territory you're taking, you're taking away from somebody else, usually through bloody combat. You don't get to leave where you are. You have to stay where you are. Like, that kind of thing. Just, like, for, I, like, I... I've gone on record before. I like second edition so much more than first edition. Oh yeah. Because second edition has, is much more focused on what the pack does. Whereas first edition spends a lot of time going over the world and how terrible it is. And why got like, there is no reason why you'd want to be a forsaken in first edition or even pure, like being a werewolf at all in first edition is just terrible for everybody. But if the pure have taken over the world, why haven't they wiped out the forsaken? Yeah, it's definitely a bit of an odd question. But I think, um, you know, we've definitely shown here in this segment that uh, there are a lot of really interesting ideas for these three pure tribes. And I think it's up to us to kind of, you know, illustrate how they'd work really well in Werewolf the Forsaken 
second edition. So, Matt, you've read a lot more about this, so I'm going to let you give uh, you know your hard take on how you think the pure would be pretty cool to use uh, in the in the updated Chronicles of Darkness. I think that they would probably work better if they were more isolated and more alien. Like, mm. like have them exist. Like, have the Forsaken be more numerous, but the Forsaken are spread out over more of an area. Because the Forsaken have their job, they have their duty. They need to keep, they have their oaths, they need to keep their territories, you know, relatively functional. They have to make sure the spirits are kept in line, that kind of thing. Whereas the pure don't have those things, and the spirits have mostly freed them to do whatever. So they can be the functional underdogs because they can do what they want they can go where they need to be to fight the forsaken but the forsaken need to stay in their territory yeah i think that's a really cool idea so so for example you know we're just looking at uh maybe maybe your game is about werewolves in new york city let's say you know because that's gonna that is one of the uh dark eras uh settings and you know there's quite a few of the uh forsaken there they're all managing the spirits and uh you know doing what they need to do but all the while they of course hear these stories coming out of upstate new york maybe like schenectady there's a whole bunch of pure there just running roughshod occasionally a ghost wolf runs in uh from out of town he you know brings back a tale of uh the the fire touched branding his friend and uh when he doesn't repent or start uh accepting their beliefs you know, he's just strung up or something. And having them just being so numerous in a particular location is a huge threat uh, for the for the Forsaken. Uh, and I think just kind of helps make them a bit more unique as an antagonist rather than being everywhere all the time. Yeah, and I just looked up to see why the pure organ control and how that how that all happened. And basically just says, in the 90s, the Forsaken fell to a lot of infighting and the pure just took over by fiat because the Forsaken were distracted. That's the justification they give. Yep. Yep. It's, uh, it was all, it was Bush Sr. Bush Sr. did it, right? Right, Chig? Absolutely. <laughs> all right, cool. So, yeah, I mean, again, I, I think the, the pure of it's very interesting uh, as an antagonist. They're an uh, uh, interesting foil to the uh, to the Forsaken. But Matt, I think you bring up some great points about how they uh, don't really work well to, uh, together, you know, as a cohesive confederation. And I think that's something that you need to definitely think about uh, when you're about to use the pure in your game. Um, do you want to just portray one specific tribe? Um, you know, uh, certainly if you have a more combat-focused game, uh, maybe just use the Predator Kings. But if you have a uh, a setting where there's a lot of interaction with spirits and trying to maintain order, uh, the fire touch could be really cool to use uh, in that game, uh, since they'd be riling up spirits, maybe uh, distracting a few of the uh, the young ghost wolves, and uh, generally causing issues in that regard in your territory. So that's some stuff I think is pretty cool. Uh, anything else, Matt, to uh, kind of close out this segment? Not really. I think I've said most of what I've wanted to say. Okay. As far as the pure are concerned. Would you recommend the book? I'm not sure. Um, because we're in second edition now. A lot of what this book says, while it gives a good overview of how the tribes are and how they interact, I'm not sure what, if any of it, is still true. I imagine we are almost certainly going to get a second edition antagonist book at some point in the future that will hope that will probably include more in- information on the itagam and the pure probably so when that comes out i would probably recommend getting it because 
pure interesting. I just don't think that their first edition portrayal is the way they are they are right now. Definitely. So I think that's uh, pretty good for the segment and uh, good for the show. So, um, of course, uh, we are Darker Days Radio, uh, one of the uh, premier World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness podcasts. You can uh, send us an email if you want to get in contact with us. Uh, tell us what you think or recommend some reviews uh, over at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. You can also check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio. Always a lot of good content over there. And of course, we have our Google Plus community, which is uh, googleplus.com slash a whole lot of gibberish. So I'll put the link in the show notes so that's easy to uh, access. Yeah, they still haven't uh, given like, you know, shorter links for Google Plus or allow you to like name your own page, which is definitely an oversight on Google's Google's part. I'm sure it's uh, on their to-do list. Yeah, it probably is. All right, cool. So Chig, Matt, thank you very much for joining me here on the show. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Good night. Till next time. See y'all.